Um, I'm going to pray with you in just a minute, but before I do, I want to just refresh your mind on where we were at last week. We were talking about Joshua, and we looked at Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua crossing the Jordan River. Now, mind you, if you remember back to last week or, or if you weren't here, Joshua had um, two million people with him. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They come to the Jordan River, and it was at flood stage, so it was really high. It would have drowned all of them. And uh, God did the amazing, as we discovered last week. He stopped the water from flowing, piled the water up 17 miles upstream, and they crossed on dry ground. And I'll picture two million people because it's really hard to get your mind around this. If you watch NFL football, think of every stadium in the United States on Sunday packed with 70,000, 80,000 people. You take every one of those stadiums in which we watch NFL football on Sunday afternoons, combine them all together, and you still don't have the same number of people that Joshua led across that river. That's why they say it took a long, long time throughout the course of the day, probably a five-mile-long line. And I'm picturing Joshua standing on the other side now. And he's got this huge group of people, children, babies, carts, donkeys, all their possessions. And we're told according to Scripture, if you read forward last, this last week in Joshua 4, that um, he did something really remarkable. I, I just want you to have your mind there as we go into prayer this morning. And you just pray with me before we step into the text. Father, we're about to look into your word, which you say is alive and it's active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and we think of individuals like Joshua who trust you relentlessly, and when you say you're going to do something, he allowed you to prove yourself faithful, and we want that in our lives. So, Father, for my brothers and sisters this morning who are gathered here in this auditorium, for those that were in the previous services, Father, we ask that you would make your word so alive to the degree that you speak to us individually and that we can sense the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit, that you might even be willing to take us to the point where we can trust you to be powerful in our life. God, we would ask that this morning as we open up this passage. Help us to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got Joshua on the bank of the Jordan. Millions of people behind him. They've wandered for 40 years. They're now about to enter into the promised land. And God told him very specifically to have some men go back into the river where the Ark of the Covenant was at on the shoulders of the priest. Remember that image? You've got that blazing golden ark sitting in the middle of the Mediterranean sunlight. The river's dry, waters pile up 17 miles away. Joshua says, go back into the river and pick up 12 boulders, put them up on your shoulder, and carry them out and pile them as a marker stone to what God did here so that all the world will know, generation after generation, your children's children's children will say, what happened here? Why is this marker here? And you will say, because the Lord your God was powerful in your midst. So in that moment, we're told not necessarily that God told Joshua to do what he did next, but for some reason, Joshua took it upon himself to personally go back into the river after the guys had come out, and he picks up 
12 boulders. You can read about it in Joshua 4 later today. And he piles them in the middle of the river. He doesn't carry them out. He piles this pyramid of rocks. Now, the water obviously is going to flow again. God's going to release it, and it's going to come surging down. So we got the marker on land, and we got this marker in the midst of the river as a silent witness to the power of God and what he had done in Joshua's life. See, when you encounter the living God and he's powerful in your life, you've got to do something with it. You've got to let people know. You want to put God on display in some way. So that marker was good enough for the generations, but Joshua had to do something personally. He wanted everyone to understand that there's going to be this witness to the power of God putting himself on display in the midst of their lives. And it just kind of exuded out of him. According to our Bible, this marker stone that you hold in your hands this morning, Christ's followers are an example of God being powerful in the lives of individuals if you allow God to put himself on display in your life. So what we're going to look at this morning as a contrast to Joshua, who had this absolute, unequivocal faith in the God who is trustworthy, we're going to look at someone who didn't have the same measure of faith and failed. And that's what Matthew 17 is about. So let me set the stage for you this morning. Here, silently and visibly, imagine this. We've got this dad who's got a son. He shows up in Matthew 17, and the son is incredibly ill. Now, along with the dad and the son, we also discover in Matthew 17 that there are the, the lawyers, the, the scribes. They show up, and there's, there's this huge crowd. And the scribes begin doing an argument thing with nine of the 12 disciples because Jesus is gone. Jesus is up on a mountain with James and John and Peter, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus' appearance was changed right before their very eyes. We'll get back to that in a minute. So here in Matthew 17, we have this dad with a sick son. We have the scribes. We have the nine of the 12 disciples. And there's another, we'll call it entity, present because I can't call it a person but it's a demon and this demon makes his presence known in this setting is where we pick up in verse 14 because there's a description here of what's going on this is speaking of Jesus when they meaning Jesus Peter James and John when they came to the crowd a man came up to Jesus falling on his knees before him saying Lord have mercy on my son for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Now, the reason I had you put your finger in Mark chapter 9 is Mark is an action writer, and he, he gives details to things that Matthew does not give details to. You'll see it on the screen as well. But I want you to get the background information of what's really going on here. So Mark chapter 9 says the same description, Mark nine seventeen, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Now, if you look at Luke's version of this, Luke chapter 9 and Mark also, they both tell us that the crowds, when they saw Jesus, they went running to him because they were amazed at his appearance. Now, most theologians believe because Jesus had just been up on the mountaintop 
And what we understand happened is that Jesus' appearance completely changed. He turned this glowing, radiant, luminescent white. And Peter, James, and John saw it. And the next thing they saw was this cloud come down around Jesus and envelop him. And then Moses and Elijah showed up and they began talking with Jesus. And then out of the midst of this cloud was this powerful voice saying, This is my son. Listen to him. So Jesus has been on the mountain while his disciples are encountering this demon-possessed boy at the bottom of the mountain. Now the scribes realize that the disciples have failed to do just what the dad just described. Disciples couldn't do it. So the scribes use this as an opportunity to enter into a debate and they get into an argument. And the argument is raging when Jesus re-enters the scene. So he comes down the hill and he finds his disciples arguing with the scribes and the crowd turns and see Jesus and they run to him to greet him. Now Mark adds to the fact that the boy not only was demon-possessed, but that he's dumb, meaning he can't speak. Luke tells us he's deaf, he can't hear. And we're also told that he goes into convulsions. Matthew said he falls into the fire constantly, and he falls into the water. In the midst of this moment, you see this dad show up with his boy begging Jesus on his knees. The crowd obviously are happy to see Jesus this man inserts himself into the situation. Now, we're told that these events happen very, very often according to this passage, and since the boy is still alive, we presume he's got really good parental care. His parents are watching out for him, and they're protecting him. But in the midst of the situation, he begs for mercy because he's in anguish over watching what his son is going through, and he calls him a lunatic. I don't know if any of you have ever called your kids lunatics. Uh, we have a different probably image in our mind of what a lunatic is compared to what the first century did. Now, when you hear the word lunatic, you have to think of the word lunar, um, like moon, okay? So that was how they associated it first. Um, they believed that certain mental disorders were associated with the appearance of the moon. You've heard the phrase loonies before, okay? That's where that comes from. Someone's acting really loony. It, it comes from this ancient phrase, lunatic, as a matter of fact, the word that they actually used here, the pronunciation is not that important, but I, I want you to see the definition for it. Solidzomai, and it means to be moonstruck. So when he says, my son is a lunatic, he's saying he's moonstruck. He doesn't understand what's going on with his son. Uh, let me show you another verse where this is used, Matthew 4.24. You see it on the screen. The news about him, meaning Jesus, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, lunatics, epileptics. That's where the word was interchanged. Solidzomahi, paralytics, and he healed them. Now, in this case, this one is so severe, he's often falling into the fire and into the water. Uh, we can't picture that in 2013, but imagine you're in a village where people are cooking their meals every night outside their home on open fire pits, or caravans moving through, and there's fires. So somebody's got to guard this little boy, because apparently he's falling into the fire. Can you imagine the burn scars that are building up on this little boy's body? And there's open wells in the Middle East. He's apparently falling into bodies of water. So his parents are constantly watching out for him, trying to protect him. 
Now the father senses there's something much bigger going on. When you read Mark's account and Luke's account, he says literally this boy is possessed with a spirit which has made him mute. And Jesus goes one step further and he verifies there's a demon inside this boy. And he's possessed. Now this particular demon is exceptionally violent. And if you've ever wondered what demonic possession looks like, read Luke chapter 9, read Mark chapter 9, and read Matthew 17. Put those three together and you've got a description of it. I've seen demon possession before. Here's an example of it from Luke chapter 9. There's some excerpts. It says this, He suddenly screams, foaming at the mouth. It mauls him. It scarcely leaves him. And can you imagine being the dad at 2 in the morning when your son is possessed? The house is not going to rest. No wonder he's in anguish. No wonder he wants his son rescued. And in verse 16, we see it. He says, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't do anything about it. He's frustrated. Now, does it not seem strange to you that the disciples couldn't do anything about it? Especially if you know your Bible and you think back to Matthew chapter 10 when only one year earlier, Jesus sent all the disciples out to do something specifically. He said, go out and preach the good news, heal the sick, and cast out the demons. So he had commissioned them and sent them out and he gave them power from on high to do what he sent them out to do. So does it not seem strange that they fail where they've previously succeeded? What's gone wrong here? Why do people who trust in God fail? It's not because Jesus is not with them. When he sent them out a year earlier, they were successful. So just because Jesus is up on the mountaintop and he's not with them doesn't give them a reason for failure. Here's the reason. It's kind of obvious because they still have Jesus' promise with them they failed to appropriate the power that was available to them, and that's what we're going to focus on today. Now, in the midst of this, we've got this increasing frustration and distress, and the Father's turning in despair to Jesus. Go with me to verse 17. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Now, that's not really what you expect Jesus to say in that moment, is it? To call you perverted. Well, let's understand why he's saying this because we're really getting a glimpse into the heart of God here. It's very important we understand when he's saying, how long? Think about this. How hard would it be for the king of creation to come and walk among a bunch of spiritual pygmies Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? Really, I'm, we're two and three-year-olds compared to the majesty of our God. So the king of glory comes and walks among a bunch of people whom he says are bent. And this is the word that he's using here. Now, understand the setting. The thrill-seekers are there. The crowd this group that just wants to see Jesus work a miracle just for their own benefit. And then you've got the Jews there who are accusing him, the scribes, the legal experts. They're looking to punish him. They want to find him guilty of some capital crime. And then Jesus is grieved at the impotence of his own disciples whom he had personally chosen, personally taught, personally gifted and endowed with unique power. Jesus is accustomed to angels 
in a split second responding to everything that he tells them to do. That's what he's experienced. That's what he knows. And he's in this awkward situation. Now, in his humanness, he's just experienced the mountaintop. Now, we're told according to this passage that when Jesus was on the mountaintop, not only did Moses and Elijah speak with him, but God confirmed to everyone who was on the mountaintop, this one, I'm honoring him. So as I thought back about this passage and seeing Jesus come down the mountainside, I just had to speculate. This is just Mark Kring speculating. Can't back this up. I'm just, I'm just thinking it through. As Jesus comes down into this situation, and he sees the disciples arguing with the scribes, the frustrated dad, the crowd who's there for the cheers, is that a moment where Satan shows up and whispers in his ear, how can they trust you? You're going to leave. This is what it's going to be like when you go away. I, I don't know. We're told when Jesus was tempted in the desert that Satan was going to return at more opportune times. I don't know if this is one of those moments. So Jesus calls out to this group of people, you perverted generation. Here's how you need to understand this perversion because he's not talking about sexual perversion. Look at this word up on the screen. It's, it's the word diastrepho. It means bending out of shape. Now this was always used of pottery craftsmen, individuals who were skilled at making pots and vessels. And after they had formed and shaped it on the wheel, before it went into the kiln, sometimes they encountered damage. Some of them got bent out of shape and they became twisted, no longer usable. That, that's the word diastrepho. It was typically used in this situation. Jesus uses it here to talk about spiritual perversion. You perverted generation. What, what he's pointing to is they've got this fundamental imbalance. They've twisted things out of shape and they don't have it in order. So Jesus says in verse 17, bring them here to me because he's got things in order. Things are in shape. He understands the, the system. Now, Mark, I told you, is an action writer, and he fills in a blank for us that Matthew doesn't give us. Look on the screen, Mark 9.20. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Now, verse 18 picks up from Matthew. Verse 18 from chapter 17. And Jesus rebuked him. And the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. See, the demon has no choice. The demon knows who he's dealing with. He's constrained. He didn't have to listen to the disciples for whatever reason. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But he has to obey the Son of God. He knows all his efforts are hopeless, and he recognizes the identity of the Son of the Most High right in front of him. That's why he goes into convulsions. But because of his nature as a fallen angel, and that's what a demon is, a fallen angel, and their nature is to rebel, this one chooses to rebel against the Son of God, and before he departs, he makes one final attempt to try and kill the boy. Look with me on the screen again at verse 26 from Mark chapter 9. Crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead I was just pondering that particular statement right there um, earlier this week. I was thinking, I, I don't know what reasoning the fallen angels use, the, the demons, how they think this through, and they're incredibly smart. 
but the king of creation is the one telling him to leave. Even if he succeeds in killing the boy, Jesus can speak life right back into him. I, I don't know what's going on there, but obviously the demon's gone. In a moment, the boy is cured. And from this death-like daze where he's completely limp, this is the tenderness of Jesus coming out. Look at this verse, Mark 9, 27. Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. It's very cool. And he got up. Now, in that moment, the crowds were told, according to what Luke said, is they're amazed at the greatness of God. And they begin crying out with megalotes, megalotes, meaning the majesty, the splendor of our God. See, Jesus is allowing God to be put on display. Unknowingly, this crowd had just had a small glimpse of the majesty and the splendor of the Lord. What James and Peter and John had seen on the mountaintop, they got to see themselves, the power of God on display, just like in Joshua's life. Uh, We would ask ourselves, why does God intervene in this moment? Well, obviously not only to bring health to the boy, but to bring glory to God. And so just like Joshua last week, that all the earth may know the Lord is mighty. We could stop right there. There's two more verses. And if we stopped right there, we could leave this morning saying, God is good. He's strong. He's powerful. But we'd be left wondering why the disciples failed. Because we can identify with the disciples. There's many times when we pray for the power of God or we ask God to intervene and we feel like maybe He's not showing up. Now, let's go on because there is much more in these last two verses. Then the disciples, it says in verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? This this verse right here is one of the subtle evidences for me of the authenticity of Scripture. You've got the guys who wrote Matthew himself, Mark, these guys, John, who were there writing these things about their own failures. They're not afraid to say it. We failed. They're being very authentic. But we're, we're told, according to Mark, that they take Jesus into a house privately because they really, in this moment, don't want other people to know. So they say to Jesus, what's up? Why were we not able to do this? You gave us power. And the we that's used here in your Bible is emphatic in the Greek language. Why could we not drive it out? They're recognizing they lack something that Jesus has. He's able to accomplish with one word what they cannot do. So let me frame it for you the way that I believe that they're saying it. How how is it you commissioned us a year ago to heal and to cast out demons? We've been successful before. Why did we fail? This is the last verse. It comes from verse 20. It's Jesus' response to them. And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible to you. Verse 21 says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer. Uh, your translation, like the one on the screen, might say, and, and fasting. But the very best manuscripts from the original text find that and fasting was added around 150 A.D. It's not something that Jesus said, something that a scribe inserted. Because fasting was really popular in 150 A.D., right around that period of time. Where Jesus ended was, this kind does not go out except by prayer. Because 
we want to understand what this littleness of faith issue is because many of us feel that way. Let's dive into that a moment. Now, notice he's not saying there's an absence of faith. He's not telling them that. He's saying because of your little faith. Now, this is a common condition among the disciples. They had saving faith. They believed that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. They believe that he's the Messiah. So they've got saving faith. That can't be taken from them. And, and they have trusting faith, some measure. Otherwise, they wouldn't have tried to heal the boy in the first place. They wouldn't have gone there. But Jesus says they've got little faith. They lack the faith to engage the power that's already been given to them. So what are they doing? They're failing to lean into God. So Jesus says, you have teeny-weeny faith, smaller than a mustard seed. It's not measuring up. Now let's think about the times that Jesus told them they had little faith. This is not uncommon. They're on the shore. There's thousands of people behind them. It's 5 o'clock in the evening. Those people want to be fed, so the disciples say, send them home, Jesus. We don't want to feed these people. We don't have enough food. Jesus says, you have little faith. They're out in the water. There's a storm. They're on a boat. The sea is in turmoil. Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. They wake him up because they've been rowing against the waves. They're getting no place, and they're saying, Master, don't you care? We're going to die. Jesus' first response before rebuking the waves is, you have little faith. Another time, Jesus is out walking on the water. He tells Peter to get out of the boat. Peter gets out of the boat and begins to walk on the water to him and immediately begins to drown. What's Jesus' first words to him when he gets back in the boat? You have little faith. How hard would that be to hear from Jesus? You lack the power of God in your life, the ability to impact others because you have such a small measure of belief that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. So you have little faith. What, what does little faith look like? Little faith is the kind that believes in God when you have something in your hand and when everything's going your way. I, I like to call it Sunday morning faith because it's easy when we're in here you know, and we're singing, our God is greater, our God is stronger, he's higher than any other. It's so easy to say, where's the demons? Bring them on. I'm ready. But Monday hits, and we feel our faith beginning to shrink. And we start comparing ourselves to the disciples because we can feel that little faith. So for the disciples, when they could feel it, when they could taste it, when they could experience it, their faith is stronger when Jesus is present. So when things are well, the disciples found it easy to trust the Lord. But as circumstances became really threatening... Their faith withers. Their faith is like most believers in 2013. When we're healthy, when we have the paychecks coming in, when our relationships are right, we feel our God is amazing. But what about when the times of trouble come? Here's what great faith looks like. Great faith trusts God when there's no food in the pantry. Great faith trusts God when the paychecks stop coming in. Great faith trusts God when he says, hey, I know it's a raging river in front of you, Joshua, but trust me, step into it. And they had to step into the water before the water would stop. So that's where great faith comes into play. It's measured out in the really difficult times. Great faith trusts God when the storm is still howling. 
He's teaching them persistence. Now, I don't know how often or how many times the disciples tried to cast the demon out. There's no demon exorcism manual. I don't know if it was six times or eight times or ten times. I don't know what they tried to do. But at some point, they gave up. They stopped doing what they were supposed to do. Now, personally, it's just kind of encouraging for me to know that the disciples ran into this situation. Even though they've got this unique calling and and God chose them, they still ran into these kind of circumstances. It makes me feel a little bit better about myself. It's kind of morbid, I suppose. But in, in verse 20, we see what seems to be this contradiction where Jesus says, you have such little faith, but if you had the faith of the size of a mustard seed you would get to greater things. So we need to understand this because Jesus is saying small faith, even small faith, can accomplish great things if it grows into something greater. How does that happen? Well, if you're familiar with Jesus' teaching on the parable of the mustard seed, you know that he said this mustard seed, even though it's really, really tiny, when you put it in the earth, it doesn't sit there stagnant. It germinates and it explodes into something much, much bigger. That's the imagery that they have in their mind when he's saying that phrase to them, that they have this small, little teeny-weeny faith, smaller than a mustard seed. Now, understand, Jesus is not talking about moving a literal mountain. He never physically moved a mountain. The disciples never moved a mountain No one in the history of the church moved a literal mountain. There's a phrase that was used here that's very common to the first century. Not that Jesus couldn't do it, but that would be a meaningless miracle. That's the kind of thing the scribes were constantly trying to get him to do just to prove that he was the Messiah because they weren't satisfied with what he did do. So this phrase, you're able to move a mountain, was this common figure of speech in the first century. And and, and as a matter of fact, in that day, it represented the ability to surmount a major obstacle in your life. Uh, Let me show you a quote from Dr. Barclay because he said it much better than I can. This is what Dr. William Barclay says. A great teacher who could really expound and interpret Scripture and who could explain and resolve difficulties was regularly known as an uprooter or even a pulverizer of mountains. To tear up, to uproot, to pulverize mountains were all regular phrases for removing difficulties. What he meant was, faith in God is the instrument that allows men to remove the hills of difficulty which block their path. So Jesus is talking about mountain-sized difficulties because they just encountered one. Nine of his disciples, his chosen guys, have encountered this demon-possessed boy and it became a mountain in their life. And they failed to conquer that mountain. So Jesus makes this staggering promise when he says, nothing, nothing will be impossible for you. And understand, that's comprehensive today. Jesus has set no limits to your life. There is nothing that is impossible to you that can be done for a person of faith. Nothing that is impossible for you to accomplish. But it's conditional. Here's the condition. It is valid only within the framework of God's will for your life and what He wants to accomplish. So understand that mountain-moving faith is not faith in yourself. It's not Mark Kring's faith in Mark Kring. It's not in my abilities. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in God. It's faith in the one who made the mountains. That's what it's grounded and rooted in because my faith only has as much power as the object. Let me help you to understand that. If my faith is in my car, it's good as long as my car is running good, right? And it can take me places. 
But when my car breaks down, where does my faith go? See, God never changes. Our hope is in the one who is unchangeable. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever the same, never changing. No shadow of turning in Him. So our faith only has as much power as its object. Our object is God. So Jesus is saying, nothing is impossible for you if you will prayerfully and persistently trust in me. Here's the evidence that the disciples didn't get that. They just failed. They failed to lean into God's power. And the disciples could not heal a boy even though they'd been commissioned by Jesus. Here's how that relates for us. Jesus commissioned you. Commissioned me. Matthew 28. Go into all the world. Tell your friends and your neighbors about who I am. Let the greatness of God be put on display. So we've been commissioned just like the disciples. They were commissioned and they were sent out. But yet, they failed. Why? Because they did not persist in dependent prayer. Their attempt was in their ability. That's why Jesus ended by saying, this kind can only come out through prayer. Why else would he say that to them if they had been praying to God the Father for his power? They tried doing what they knew to do in their own abilities, and Jesus is saying, you failed because your faith is little. You placed it in yourself, but not in the greatness of your God who's able to do amazingly, abundantly, beyond all that you ask or imagine. I just want to clarify one point before we wrap up. It is really possible to misunderstand the will of God and try to move mountains in your life that should not be moved. And if you attempt to do that, you will be like me and you will be disappointed because I've tried to move some mountains which were not in God's plan or His timing. And I was disappointed because I thought I understood God's will in that particular situation only to find out later looking back on it, God's plan was something else. But it's really critical and crucial that we come before the Father saying, what is your will in this situation? And once we understand that, we pray like there's no tomorrow. What Jesus is really clarifying is he's saying there's infinite resources available to you. And he's calling those who follow him to exercise what we have available to us. I'm going to wrap it up this way. It, it is not my impression in my 50 years of life as I meet believers after believers after believers that most people doubt God's ability. It, it's just not my impression. God, God is powerful and amazing. And I think if I asked every person in this room this morning, you would say, yeah, God's able. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that I can ask or imagine according to what Scripture says. Here's where I think most people really struggle. They lack the belief that God really does care. I'm going to flesh that out for you. Most people really think that God's not all that interested in their situation. Where does that come from? Satan. He's the one who puts doubts in our mind. When God's own word says, hey, I never set an alarm clock. I never sleep. I never slumber. You're, you're always on my mind. I'm always focused on you. Let me remind you, because God says this about himself. Isaiah 40, Isaiah wrote this when he was struggling. Let me show you this on the screen. Isaiah 40, verse 17, or 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. So as you leave this morning, I ask you a question to take with you. Do you pray with the faith that God can change your situation? No matter how big it is, no matter how hard it is, what is your impossible situation today? Have you brought it before God the Father? Persistently and consistently. Starting first by asking for His will. We tend to shy away from the name and claim it crowd. And I'm just going to speak not to those listening on iTunes at this moment. I'm going to speak to those of us in this auditorium, the New Hope crowd. We are a theologically conservative group of people. We study our Bibles. We're very cautious about the jots and the tittles. We want to be very careful about what it says. And we tend to shy away from the name and claim it crowd, the televangelist. And there's danger in that. You know what I mean? If you're not familiar with the phrase name and claim it crowd, there's individuals on television who will say, you want that Cadillac? God wants you to have that Cadillac. Just name it and claim it. It's yours. That, that is not how God works, just to be very clear. Okay? That's the name it and claim it crowd. But in theology, we tend to shy away from that and throw the baby out with the bathwater. When we forget that we do serve the God of wonders, who says, I want to work through you exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine. Why? To make my name great in all the earth so people will be turning to me. So what's your impossible situation this morning? And are you allowing God to put himself on display in your life? Why were the disciples unable? Because they did not ask. No prayer. So if I don't pray, if Mark Kring doesn't pray, it reveals a lack of faith on my part. Little faith. Either I don't think I need the help or I won't think he cares. It's one of those two. I have to have arrived at that conclusion. So what's really going on is that I'm doubting in my life the power and the goodness of God. Uh, that's what I'm going to leave you with this morning. To ponder where you're at personally on that situation. So here's how you can start. You find yourself there, here's how you can start. You can come to God and say, I can't do this. That's humility. You're recognizing you're not powerful enough. And then you say to Father, but you can. That's faith. That's where you need to start. Let me pray for you as we leave this morning. God, I, I pray for everyone in this auditorium, everyone listening on the recording devices. And Father, I lift up to you the previous two services as well, that in this moment you would drive this truth home. You never change. There's no shadow of turning in you. You were the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, if you would remind us of that throughout this week ahead, that our measure of faith in you would be increased because what you said to be true can be depended upon. Your promises never fail. So God, I, I pray for our church
that we would allow you to prove yourself powerful in our midst and that we would step out and trust you even when the waters are swirling in front of us. You are faithful. And because of what you've done for us through the work of Jesus Christ and the relationship that we have with you, God, we walk forward in confidence. So increase our boldness. Even this afternoon if it's necessary, Father. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope. Hope to see you at the picnic this afternoon.